everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last right along right side and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Actually, this is the first day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, the podcast. Uh, most of you, or some of you, I hope, uh, at least I've read some of my work over the years, detailing my uh, exploits as a fan of Memphis wrestling growing up uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, when Memphis wrestling packed uh, the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night uh, featuring guys like Jerry the King Lawler, the Fabulous Ones, Jackie Fargo, Rough House Fargo, Jimmy Hart, The First Family, Stan Hansen, Austin Idol, Bill Dundee, Randy Macho Man Savage, all those guys. I mean, it was just one of the most controversial, exciting promotions around. The TV was uh, the, had to be the, the best uh, with, the, with the possible exception of Bill Watts, it's Mid-South Wrestling. And uh, eventually I got to live my dream as, uh, as a heel manager. You know, it's kind of funny. I think most kids, if you grew up in Pittsburgh and uh, you were a big Terry Bradshaw fan, maybe you wanted to be a quarterback one day. But I grew up watching guys like Jimmy Hart and uh, Jim Cornette and Paul Dangerly cutting these great promos every week. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a heel manager. Uh, I was probably one of the tallest heel managers in history, but that's that's uh, <laughs> somehow we made it work. Uh, and so I'm really excited about this first episode. It doesn't get any bigger. I told you we had a big show. It doesn't get any bigger than our first guest. And here to tell you about that is my sidekick, Brian Last. Well, like you said, a really big show today for the inaugural episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling, the podcast. And I know you have a lot of big things you're going to be bringing people in the weeks ahead, Scott. But this week on the show, the big guest, Jerry Jarrett. And you're going to be discussing a number of things with him, including putting Jerry Lawler with Sam Bass and Jim White and how that really helped develop Jerry Lawler. You're going to discuss Jerry Lawler's quest for the title. The run which turned Jerry Lawler, the top heel, into the local sports team, the local babyface, the man the fans were all ready to get behind. And of course, you're going to go over and really discuss, and I think it'll be apparent, just how detail-oriented Jerry was while getting Jerry Lawler ready for that push to the top. Absolutely. It sounds like a good one. And we've also got very rare audio from WHBQ. A good friend of mine by the name of Chit Namius uh, recorded these episodes. He moved from uh, New York to Memphis and, uh, and quickly became a big fan of it. And these audio cassettes are 40 years old. Uh, so we're talking promos from Jerry Lawler, Sam Bass, Bill Dundee, I think we have Bill Dundee's first ever interview in the studio coming up in the weeks ahead. All kinds of rare gems from Memphis Wrestling that haven't been heard in years. You're going to hear them on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And uh, that kicks off today. We have some very great audio clips, and we get to hear Jerry Jarrett's reaction to those. And, of course, the key factor in helping get this kid over has the King of Memphis. And really, the man in the middle who made the magic happen the true star of the Memphis Wrestling Show was the late, great Lance Russell. This interview with Jerry Jarrett was conducted days before Lance passed away. Uh, actually, I'd been in talks with Lance's son, Shane, about coming on our show and going over some of this uh, rare audio from the WHPQ days. Uh, I know Lance was in Memphis recently and got to see Jerry Lawler one last time. Uh, this show is dedicated to him, and every episode, when we open with Yellow Again, everybody, that is our tribute to Lance Russell, in my opinion, the greatest wrestling announcer and one of the nicest men I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Here's to you, Lance.
Try Baxter's. It's Baxter's pre-fall clearance, and you still have time today to shop at Baxter's and save. Special group of sport coats, only $25 while they last, reduced half price from $49.95. 100% polyester double knit and 100% wool woven sport coats reduced half price while they last. Remember, Baxter's has a brand new location, 3923 Park Avenue, Park at Getwell. Also, 468 North Watkins, 2272 Lamar, and 900 Brooks Road. So in 1974, my father was a big wrestling fan, and he would watch Memphis Wrestling on WHBQ Channel 13. Uh, I wanted Foghorn Leghorn, but I had to settle for Lance Russell. And at first, I didn't like this, uh, but slowly, uh, I became a super fan. I was fascinated by the Mongolian Stomper, and then came along this brash young superstar named Jerry Lawler, who I just thought was the coolest cat in the world. Uh, and the man who crowned the king, who saw championship potential and saw money in this guy, was the man that we have as our very first guest today on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. I'm talking about the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett. Thank you, Scott. And I'm very flattered and honored that you would uh, choose to have me on your show, and particularly as your opening guest. Um, I would assume that since this is your first one, that you are a bit nervous. <laughs> and so my <laughs> my advice to you is the same as when you walked out as a manager. Scott, relax, be yourself. In the studio, I would say the camera is your friend. Here, I'll say the microphone is your friend. Just be yourself and you'll be a hit. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate that. And I do remember uh, that, oh, that awful pit that, uh, in, in my stomach as I walked out to do my first heel interview with Lance Russell, who just carried me like a baby through the whole process. So I'm counting on you to do the same here today, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's talk a little bit about this uh, this brash young superstar, this controversial king of Memphis, Jerry Lawler. Uh, now, Jerry had been, of course, uh, a part of a successful tag team with Jim White, uh, managed by Sam Bass, uh, and had feuded with, uh, with the likes of you and Jackie Fargo and others, and was a huge draw. I mean, you guys were drawing 10,000, 11,000 people every week. What did you see in him early on that made you think this kid was special? Well, to quickly carry you back, because while you came in in 74, 74 was about the midpoint of our quest for the title program, which was a program that lasted for about a year. Jerry. Lawler came to me through Jackie Fargo. Jackie said, I've got this kid that's driving me nuts. He's a good artist, but I don't know what, how he can wrestle. We give him a shot. So we brought him to Memphis TV as an enhancement talent. The dirty name for it is a job man. And he was just for the early stages of his career, I thought he was just incredible, very athletic, and uh, was really into it. His problem was, and he only had one, was that he was nervous and would grin 
as a little tick for his nervousness. And of course, this is very distracting if you're playing the role of a bad guy beating somebody up and then that's okay to grin. But when they go to beating you up to continue grinning (laughs) is a negative. Yeah. But, uh, at any rate, I, I saw some potential in him and Tojo and I were going over to the Kingsport Johnson city area. And there was a kid over there named Jim White. And um, my philosophy back then was that you only needed one star on a team. And the other one, kind of like Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, the straight guy. So I talked to Jim White about coming to Memphis and uh, Sam Bass about coming to Memphis specifically to put him with Lawler because he was a new talent and I wanted him to have some veterans and the right role players with him. And of course, me being lucky, like I always was, it worked out and Sam Bass and Jerry Lawler and Jim White became quickly the best tag team we had in the in the whole territory. Yeah, and how quickly did he develop into a personality? Did I'm sure it started off perhaps with maybe uh, Sam uh, starting off the promos and then maybe pitching it to Jerry, but then I think very quickly Jerry became the mouthpiece uh, for the trio. Is yes, that correct? Ab- absolutely. Jerry is, after all of my career, I can say without a doubt, Jerry is the most talented wrestler I ever worked with in the ring, behind the mic, in every way. And so, yes, I brought Sam down to because I wasn't sure of Jerry's interview skills, and I knew he would be real nervous. So I brought Sam to kind of be the mouthpiece, and then Jim White, to lead the matches and guide Jerry and uh, kind of be his straight man. But I'm, I don't remember how long, but I know shortly Sam became a smiling face on the interview and Jerry took the lead. Sam would kind of introduce him. And, uh, you know, he was, he was really gifted and long, long after his physical ability in the ring waned, his verbal skills kept him with the WWE. And one thing that was interesting, because I've uncovered a lot of early uh, interviews that feature Lawler and Bass uh, that haven't been heard in decades. Uh, these, these were recorded by uh, a displaced New Yorker, uh, a young kid who had just moved to Memphis and thought, wrestling was the greatest thing he had ever seen in his life and be- quickly became a fan uh, of Jerry. Uh, and today they're actually good friends. But uh, at this point, Jerry is uh, just on fire uh, as a, a heel interview. And then Sam pitches in, kind of backs up going, that's right, Jerry. That's right. You tell him, Jerry. Yeah. You know, and just kind yeah. of adding his two cents and with Lawler leading the way. Yes, that's that's the way it worked, and that was the magic of it. 
when you started, we were at the height of, of a program. I, I believe that the best wrestling, I believed it then and I believe it today. And it's in great part, and I don't want to sound like an old timer that says, oh, back in my day. But I miss the storytelling of wrestling mm. and as a fan. And so I believed that the wrestling fan wanted a play, a Shakespeare play. Not a soap opera, but a, but a real play that had real live characters and personalities. Shakespeare for the masses, in other words. Yes, yes. I've, I've said that a hundred times, and people <laughs> sometimes snicker at it. But that was my philosophy. And uh, I saw in Jerry this kid that should have been the world champion. And behind the scenes, I worked diligently. And, of course, I didn't have the the politics that Sam Munchnick and the St. Louis office had. And so all of my campaigning for the NWA title didn't work. Jerry finally got the AWA world title but at any rate back to the story the quest for the title my idea was to bring everybody in the country in to wrestle jerry and uh, to prove that he deserved the world title and this process over time won him a lot of fans And therefore, he became, through this program, the good guy, regardless of what he would do. They would love it if he'd pull out a chain or or stick something in his elbow. I think because. I think Jerry I think I think Jerry was the dirtiest baby face uh, ever in the history of the profession. <laughs> yes, yeah they they really wanted to see him get the title, and they saw how much he wanted it. So that was um, that was my story. We brought the original Sheik in. We brought Dick the Bruiser. We brought Bob Root and. And uh, the Mongolian Stomper. Well, and uh, you know, I was a- I was asking Jerry about some of these guys and about you know if he if he was intimidated at all, uh, being a, a relative unknown really to to the rest of the wrestling world. Uh, and he says uh, he says, well, I, I was really fascinated by the Sheik. And so the Sheik shows up at the Mid-South Coliseum and Jerry's backstage talking to him and they're having a conversation for about 30 minutes. And finally he looks over at Jerry and he goes, hey, who's this kid I'm working with tonight? And Jerry goes, I I guess he thought I was just the guy who set up the ring or (laughs) was a was a was (laughs) a was a gopher. And he goes, "Uh, that would be me, sir. And he said the Sheik looked him up and down and was like, oh, brother. Uh, But uh, but they drew. Gosh, an overflow crowd of 11,700 people uh, at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, There was fire involved. 
And afterward, Jerry asked the, he's like, you gotta show me how you do this. And that was the beginning of the fireball gimmick for Lawler. Right. Right. Uh, the way we were able to pull that off is a fellow by the name of Jim Barnett bought the Atlanta territory and, uh, Bill Watts was booking Atlanta, and Barnett, doing his research, saw what we'd done in Memphis on a continual basis and the whole Tennessee Territory. So he flew in here from Australia, and he hired me to book for him. And Atlanta was not doing very well. When I, The first night I got there, there was... A, 2,200 people in the big Atlanta auditorium. Was that around 1972, Um, Jerry? Yes. Okay. And then Barnett said, I will pay you anything you want, anything you ask for, if you can have this selling out by the time I get here. And me being either young or dumb or both, I said, (laughs) okay. (laughs) And four weeks later, when Barnett got here from Australia, there was, the line was three deep all the way around the building. A complete sellout. So Atlanta, being a showcase territory, quickly enhanced my reputation. And then because of that, I was able to get the Sheik and the Bruiser and all of these superstars to come in. Now, I couldn't talk all of them into putting Jerry over, but I did my homework, and with the with the magic of an editing machine, <laughs> we would work a high spot during the match. <laughs> and then I remember this is before Network where everybody saw everybody's TV. So I thought, well, they won't care. They're gone. So I would edit the high spot and have Lawler walk out and say, I beat his brains out. Look at this film. One, two, three. And I would tell Lance Russell, just roll your eyes, but don't, to keep your credibility, but don't say, Lawler, that's a lie. Right. So it came, the end result was the impression that Lawler beat everybody he got the ring with. Right, right. <laughs> if, if, not, if, if, if not in reality, then with a little creative editing. Yeah, well, you were a fan then. Didn't you get the feeling Lawler just beat everybody? Well, and the way it, and the way it came across was that not that the promotion was trying to fool you. It was, it was that Lawler was just, you know, so full of himself and so cocky, uh, and that no matter what you, what you think you saw, I beat my opponent. You know, who, you know, who, who do you see? You know, they, they, I think they left Mr. Wrestling Two lying in the middle of the ring, even though Lawler had technically lost the match by disqualification. Uh, and Lawler's crowing about being the winner of the match. He beat his opponent. Uh, so it made it appear as if he were slowly knocking off the top 10 contenders in the NWA on his way to fight Jack Briscoe. Yes. Yes. So they were, they were fun days and we were full of ourselves. Um, uh, I got very 
few death threats, Dick the Bruiser called me and said, somebody said you edited that high spot where <laughs> Lawler got one, two, three. I said, well, we just showed it as a high spot, but everybody knows you won, Dick. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Lawler's a heel. Nobody's believing what he says, you know? Come on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I, b- I believe that led to a little bit of a scuffle, uh, supposedly, between Lawler and Bruiser at some point, uh, and perhaps a, a, a disagreement with Harley Race over some creative editing. But uh, but at any rate, uh, the program uh, was was really successful. And one guy who you were able to uh, put Jerry over clean right in the middle of the ring was uh, Rufus R. Jones. Uh, and we have yes. some, yeah. And we actually have a, we actually have, uh, we actually have Jerry with Sam Bass cutting a promo on who he refers to as Rupus R. Jones. Uh, and we're going to listen to that right now. Now let's talk about Rufus R. Jones just a little bit. Next time you get an interview on Rufus R. Jones, Lance, if you don't mind, I'll stand out here and translate it into English so the people can understand what he's saying. He comes out here, and if you people had any sense at all, you'd be insulted. The man can't even talk. He's out there saying, Memph. This is Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Rufus R. Jones, not Memph. Whenever you come to my town, baby, I'm the king, and I expect you to treat me with respect and treat this city with some respect. Now, you come in here, and you think you're man enough to challenge the king. Well, I got news for you, Rufus R. Jones. You're going to go down just like those other big men that I wrestled, Bobo Brazil and Bearcat Brown, the Sheik and Dick the Bruiser and Mr. Wrestling. You're going to go down right in line with the rest of them, big old, uh, what's his name? He's got me so confused with this mimp, I can't even... Rufus R. Jones. Rufus R. Rufus. I can't... He can't even say his own name, much less Memphis. Well, Rufus R., after Tuesday night, baby, you won't want any more of the king, and you won't want any more of mimp, because I know you need money. I could tell by the clothes you were wearing. Well, I'm going to give you some money after that match, Rufus, and you can go out and buy yourself a new shirt. But after you get through with me, you can forget about any hopes of ever facing Jack Briscoe because I'm the man that's going to take the crown off of Briscoe. I'm the king of Memphis, and I'm going to be the king of wrestling. And you're going to realize that Tuesday night, Rufus. Well, there's a lot of incentive for Rufus R. If he is able to stand there with Lawler and beat him, he does get a shot. And another thing I want to tell you people, I went out and I talked to Mr. Bates. I heard his interview. I talked to Bates out there. You know what he had in mind, Lance Russell? I could tell by his interview. He knows that even a draw with the king would be just as good as a win, and it would put him in line for a title contention shot. Well, I outsmarted you, Rufus. I went out and I talked to Mr. Bates, and I made him change that match. It's a no-time limit and a no-disqualification match. Now, let's see if you're man enough to stay in there and try to beat the king. I knew what you were going to try to do. You were going to run and try to come out with a draw. But now you're not going to get a draw. You're going to have to stand there and take it like a man and take the beating that you deserve. So the match is now no-time, no-disqualification. Right. Is that right? Is that right? That's no right. Time. No That's time right. limit, no disqualification. You're not going to get a draw with the king. It's going to be a winner or a loser for you, Rupus. They can't beat us and can't outsmart us, can they, Lance Russell? Well, that's what you keep telling us, Sam. And Jerry Lawler keeps holding on to the Southern Heavyweight title, and he's got his eye on the Big Apple up there, Jack Briscoe's crown. We'll see just how close he can come to it when he tangles with Rufus R. this coming Tuesday night. We're going to be back with a fine tag match with Hickerson and Green going against Marlin and Gilbert in just a moment. 
Okay, so right there, uh, Jerry is just oozing that natural hill charisma. I, I don't even know if that interview could air today. Uh, there are some slight racial overtones there. But at any rate, uh, he had intense heat, and then you kind of hear just Sam in the background kind of chiming in a little bit, going, yeah, that's right. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a great way to build Lawler's credibility has a serious contender i believe jerry also reached out to bill after and sold him on the story so every month in the wrestler and inside wrestling lawler is slowly climbing the ratings so it, yes. it was yeah it was a really it was a really cool deal and you had all these stars come in and lawler uh bobo bobo brazil was another one who was a legend in the business. And uh, he seemed to be a little bit more cooperative than others. Was that the case? Yes. Bobo is a great guy and a real professional. And, you know, some of the wrestlers became a legend in their own mind and, and got to believing in a scripted business that they were really tough. And some of them were, and some of them weren't. It wasn't, I didn't think it was relevant. I always looked at wrestling as theater, always. Now, I practiced kayfabe and have been in fistfights when somebody would disparage my business and say, oh, it's all funny. But, you know, it, it was kind of a dual role. Mentally, I said, this is the greatest theater because it's all ad lib. You know, mm. we we would talk things over, but then when you'd go to the ring, it was you know it was like being in a Shakespeare play with no script, right? Or right. very and, little. And it, and that's and, an exhilarating that's a, that's an exhilarating feeling. You know, people have asked me about. Why, why did Andy Kaufman, why did he want off the number one TV show in the country, Taxi? He was miserable to, to go to Memphis and do wrestling. I'm like, because it's the best form of theater there is. Where else do you perform in front of 10,000 people and you're the bat, you're the villain in the play and the fans actually want to kill you <laughs> and they throw yeah. bricks at your car? Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's, an, it's an incredible adrenaline rush. Um, yes. Yes, that, at wrestling when it's done right and at its best is unquestionably the greatest theater of all time. Well, um, and you and the great thing about your show, Jerry, and, and it's a testament to your creativity, was how episodic uh, the TV shows were, uh, and how you know because you guys were running every single week at the Coliseum, you know. And prior, you know, I think we we also have to bring up Jackie Fargo. You know, because the quest for the title program doesn't even get off the ground if Jackie Fargo doesn't pass the torch first to Jerry. Um, yeah. So you're you're coming off record business with Jackie, uh, and even Ricky Gibson uh, gets involved, and Jackie's in his corner, and I think that drew uh, almost twelve thousand people. I don't know. I don't know how you cram that many people into the Coliseum. Maybe maybe you paid off the fire marshal. But uh, but you guys were doing you, you guys were doing amazing business uh, right before the quest for the title even started. Can you can you tell me uh, 
about Jackie's feelings about, I know he was very fond of Jerry uh, and eventually they developed kind of a father son relationship and Jerry called him pop. Uh, but initially how did Fargo feel about kind of passing the torch to this young kid? Well, you know, Jackie was responsible for him being on Memphis TV the very first time. And, and he worked at the radio station for Jackie, you know, doing their artwork. So Jackie felt kind of responsible and he should be for breaking him in the business. So I went to Jackie and I said, Jackie, you and I do not want to be like some of the people in wrestle way past their prime. And the example I used was Dick the Bruiser. Mm. You know, Dick in his prime was a fine specimen of a human being physically and had a was a great athlete. But then he kept on and kept on and kept on until he became a joke in the business. And so right. I talked to Jackie, and Jackie said, you don't have to preach to me. I know. It gets harder and harder and harder. And one night, Jackie came to me, and he said, Jerry, I will pay you my payoff if you'll substitute me in Jonesboro. I just can't do it. Mm. And so I said, well, you know, don't go. And so I got somebody else to take his place. And it was shortly after that situation that I had to talk with him. And I said, you know, so that we can all continue to make money, if you would pass the torch to Jerry as the king of Memphis, uh, it'll be good for the business. And he did without any hesitation. One quick point I want to bring up, too, because a lot of people say that Lawler stole the King gimmick from Bobby Shane, and and, and that is not accurate. Uh, Lawler said in an interview that after uh, he beats Fargo Monday night that he's going to be the new King, and then he beat him, and then the fans started calling him the King. Hey, there's the King, the new King of Memphis. Uh, long live the King and all that kind of stuff. And he, Lawler was also, had also been working in Atlanta and I believe uh, you were involved in getting him booked there. And Bobby Shane was using the, the King gimmick, uh, and had a crown and he gave Jerry his first crown, but Jerry didn't steal the gimmick from Bobby and actually had Bobby's blessing to, 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 to take the crown. If Jerry stole the gimmick from anybody. He he borrowed it from Elvis Presley, right? Because he he came to me one night and he said, "You know, Elvis Presley is lucky to sell the Mid South Coliseum out once every three years, and I sell it out every week. <laughs> I it gets heat with me. I mean, you know, he's making yeah. one of those Lawler interviews backstage. He said." It gets heat with me when people say he's the king of Memphis. I'm the king of Memphis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it was quickly referred to as the ho- the Mid South Coliseum was the house that Lawler built. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, yeah, and, 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 and that's right. That, credit. 
And and initially, that's right. And all the WHBQ footage uh, or audio that uh, that I've been going through, uh, he's not referred to as the king of wrestling. It's uh, the controversial, brash king of Memphis. Uh, so that yes. was clearly a jab at, at Elvis. Uh, and also the fact yeah. that he had also knocked off Jackie Fargo. That's right. Well, and, uh, yeah. and you know, and, and some of these guys who, who came in were, I think, quickly impressed with Lawler's ability. Bobo was one of them. Uh, Lawler told me a great story uh, that after the Sheik uh, taught him the, uh, the fire gimmick, you know, Sheik uh, was interested in bringing him to Detroit. And he said, uh, give me one of your uh, pictures, kid. I'll, uh, I'll put it in my program and, and say that you're, you're coming in soon. And so Ed Farhat goes back to Detroit and gives Lawler's picture to the guy who puts together the, uh, I, I believe it was the Flying Body Press, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, says, uh, yeah, I read a little thing on this kid. He, he, he's a fabulous worker. So the program comes out. Sheik returns to Memphis for a rematch with Lawler and shows it to Jerry and it says, Coming soon, Jerry Lawler, a fabulous worker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh boy. Um, oh, and we also uh, have some. We also have some audience. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Cat Lad was another guy that came in that um, was a real professional, and you know he's a great football player and. But anyway, there was a long list of them. I don't recall them all now. But well, you were telling me that you came in when Archie Gold and the Stomper started. Yeah. Well, yeah. The first uh, the first time that I really started paying attention to wrestling, uh, Archie Goldie, uh, the Mongolian Stomper. Uh, they they were showing a clip from the Mid South Coliseum, and it you know, and it looked packed. And it looked just so exciting, and uh, it was an aftermath uh, of of some kind of wild brawl that would tend, you know, tend to take place in Memphis. And several wrestlers were trying to restrain the Stomper, and he was tossing them around like sacks of garbage, and just couldn't be stopped. And I just thought this guy's like the Incredible Hulk because I was really into Marvel comics at the time. And that's when I started paying a little bit more attention to, uh, to Memphis wrestling. And I, and the stomper, he didn't have to say a word. His look just would send chills down your spine. Uh, and he had a great manager, Bearcat Wright to do the talking for him. Well, the story of that is that Archie was an incredible physical specimen and a great heel wrestler. But he didn't have the verbal skills to match Lawler. So I found Bearcat Wright, or I talked him into coming in, because he has tremendous interview skills. And together they just made a great team. Occasionally, Bearcat would speak in some sort of Mongolian gibberish <laughs> to, to, to Stomper, who would kind of answer back, and then and then Wright would take over the interview. And actually, if we can, uh, let's play a classic clip of Lance Russell interviewing. Well, uh, the Stomper says very little, but uh, interviewing Bearcat Wright uh, after a controversial match with Jerry Lawler. Uh, in which the Stomper loaded his boot to beat the King and uh, gain a tainted victory. 
and you answer just simple yes or no. Did you give the stock? I don't know whether I can say yes or no or not. That's a big question. Did, About what can I say yes or did no? Did you give the stomper something to use on Jerry? Absolutely Lowe? not. It's unthinkable. Well, the absolutely in, not. The, in, the, in, of even being bothered with this whole thing. Well, let him go on out. The NWA will make the decision. You've heard it from Bearcat Wright. You will hear it from some of the wrestling fans who were here as to whether there will be a All return. you fans has got to do is remember what I told you. Don't let them stack the deck against us. Okay, Bearcat Wright has had his say. This is Lance Russell from the Memphis Mid-South Coliseum. So right there, yeah, just amazing. And I love how Lance uh, reacts to Bearcat's accusations that the promotion is stacking the deck against us. And uh, Lance is rolling his eyes and is so disgusted uh, and, and vows that the NWA is going to take a look at this film and Lawler is going to get a rematch one way or another. Um, I love how emotional Lance would get uh, at times. Uh, you know, Gordon Soley yeah. was typically even killed, but Lance uh, would, would really get fired up occasionally. And, and I, think, uh, I think the fans en- enjoyed that. Whereas Dave Brown, you know, they complimented each other really well. Well... I told, I don't know if you know or have gotten into the politics of us moving from WHBQ to WMC and all that history. And I guess that's a story of another time. But the one thing, understanding that I had with Lance was, don't ever, when you go over the card, don't ever say that this is a card that you don't want to miss unless it's a card that you don't want to miss because your credibility is my credibility. Mm. Not me personally, but I mean, as Memphis wrestling. And so Lance would use these wonderful facial expressions to say, you're full of bull, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and, uh, and keep his credibility. So, um, I don't know how much time we have Scott, but I've got a real personal story of Archie that I think your fans would find interesting. I would love to hear it. Okay. I brought Archie in and he was, drawing phenomenal houses and I was making more than phenomenal money. And then Archie was, was this animal on the screen and he was this sweet little docile guy in person. And I helped him get a house for he and his wife in Hendersonville. And we'd have, whenever I'd get some time off and he'd be off, we'd have him over for dinner. And I lived on Oak Hickory Lake, and I had a a little day cruiser. It wasn't a huge boat, but it was, uh, I, don't, I think it was a 35-foot day cruiser. Anyway, Archie would love for me to take him out. And, of course, he kept a suntan, so he would grease up and sit on the back of the boat, and we'd ride up and down over Victor Lake. One time he called, and he said, I'm off. I got a short trip tonight. I'm off. 
can you take me out on the boat? And I said, no, I'm, I'm really working hard on television, Archie. I can't do it today. Well, would you let me take it out? And so I said, sure, come on over and get it. So Archie came over and I went down and helped him get started. And I said, now, Archie, stay between the buoys. Old Hickory Lake has big expanses of open water, but the water is not three or four feet deep. And uh, you'll run aground. So he said, I'll do it. I will not get out of the buoys. So he's supposed to be back at two o'clock, and then it comes three, and then it comes four. And I go, he's going to miss his town. So buddy of mine, Bobby Bear, the country music singer, you know, Detroit City, (laughs) he lived next door to me. So I called him, and I don't know if he was there, Jeannie, his wife. But anyway, they let me borrow the boat. I said, I got to go find the wrestler. So here I head up off the lake, and sure enough, Here's my cruiser laying over on its side in about two feet of water. And this big bald-headed hulk (laughs) sitting (laughs) up on the boat balancing. And he says, none of these son of a bitches that passed me in their boat would help me. I said, Archie, look in the mirror. Are you scaring anybody to death? <laughs> so anyway, I I put him in Bobby's boat and take him back as fast as I can, and he did make it to his town, although he was late. And he tore the transom off the back of my boat, and I had to get it fixed. But he was drawing so much money, I just said, "Well, I'll write it up as an expense." <laughs> oh yeah and, and boy in this we're, we're getting our head ahead of ourselves a little bit but the summer of 75 he was on fire as a draw but uh but before we get to that um i want to talk a little bit more about bobo brazil because like i said he was he was a legend and he was uh probably the most cooperative of all the guys who came through because he put lawler over twice um now the first match drew about ten thousand fans and Sam Bass uh, grabbed Bobo's leg and prevented him from getting back in before the count of 10. So Lawler won by count out. And then I think that was edited a little bit where you, you didn't see the count out. Lawler claimed that he pinned him in the whole deal. Uh, so Bobo sends in a tape promo where he really puts over Lawler as a tough guy. And a mm-hmm. legit threat to the world championship, and uh, and I just uncovered this rare piece of audio that aired on WHBQ in August of 1974 uh, that led to the rematch, uh, and we'll play that right now. Sammy, beside me is the man of the hour, Bobo Brazil, who will be at the South Coliseum this Monday night to meet Jerry Lawler. And Bobo, I know you have a lot of fans here in Memphis. And before uh, I talk to you, I know you have a lot of things on your mind concerning Jerry Lawler. If you don't mind, I'd like to fill the people on uh, this situation. Fill them in exactly as it happened here in Memphis. Now, as I understand it, you met Jerry Lawler in a match here in Memphis already. Manager Sam Bass was ringside. Both of you were on the outside of the ring. The count was in by the referee. And somehow, this bass, he snuck around and held your leg, and Lawler got in first, and he got his hand raised in victory. 
So then you decided to take care of Mr. Bass the way it should be done in the middle of the ring. And, Bobo, you did it, and I want to shake your hand. Thank you, Bob. I'm doing this on behalf of all the fans here in Memphis. I want to shake your hand because you took care of Bass. Now, this Monday night, you meet Jerry Lawler here in Memphis. And uh, what are you going to do this time to ensure that this Sam Bass doesn't stick his nose in there again? Well, Bob, you know I have a little thing up my sleeve. I don't want to tell you or tell none of the fans out there. I want this to be a real surprise because Jerry Lawler and Sam Bass, they may be somewhere listening. I know Sam will be around the right side someplace. <laughs> Sam, won't you understand this? It may be someone in my corner. If someone don't be in my corner, if you look over and don't see anyone, don't say Brazil is out here by himself. Because you believe this fast, and Lola, someone will be looking at you. Jerry, it's one thing, baby. You have something that I really want. The fans, they want me to have it. And I'm gonna, I promise my fans I'm going to do everything in my power to get it. You call yourself the king. I'm not taking anything away from you, Jerry Lawler. You're a good man. You're a good wrestler. You're tough. But there's some more wrestlers just a little bit tougher. And you do a lot of bragging. But I got to stop you. Someone has to stop you. And I promise you, Jerry Lawler, I'm going to do everything right here to be the one to do it. Bobo Brazil. I got to get in with you. It's no one gonna take me down off the ladder once I start to climb. I promise you that. I'm not gonna stand here and tell you what I'm gonna do to you. I'm gonna get in that ring and just try to squeeze you. You know, I thought I get speechless for words every time I think of it. I know you're upset with this, Lawler, and I think this Monday night you're gonna prove what you can do just one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of you. Well, just like I said, Sam Bass will be around. I know that. The fans said, Brazil, you watch Bass. I will be watching Bass or someone else be watching him for me. Fans, you all be there this Monday night, South Coliseum, right here in Memphis. Bobo Brazil against Jerry Lawler. Don't miss it. All right, and that was really, gosh, that was that was a huge leap. That man, And the, the rematch drew uh, 10,750 people. So by doing that, by elevating Lawler uh, and putting Lawler over, not only in the ring, but in, in, in his promos, Bobo realized that was best for business. Um, and it's a shame guys like, uh, like Bruiser, uh, d didn't quite see it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, the wrestling business, like any business is made up of varying degrees of professionals and, you know, Bobo Brazil was one of the classiest wrestlers that was in the business at the time or for all times. And he, he was great. And he, I think that was Kobo arena in Detroit. He probably sold that out more than anybody that was ever in the arena, either as a wrestler or any kind of entertainer. I mean, he really was a first-class person and a super box office. Oh, and it just and you could just tell from watching old footage, just full of charisma. You know, yes, the, yes, he he, he, he had that he had that it factor. 
here's what I can tell you. Bobo worked for Eddie Forrest, the Sheik, the original Sheik. Mm-hmm. And the Sheik was kind of an outlaw. So he would, I mean, even though he was an NWA member, so he would like go into business for himself. And if the, if the board didn't go along with him, he would just do it. <laughs> he told me one time, he said, Jerry, in this business, it's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Sam Muchtek brought Sheik uh, to St. Louis once and Farhad agreed that he would uh, adhere to the St. Louis style. Uh, and of course, within two minutes, he's throwing the guy out of the ring, busting him open with a chair, and Sam never hired him to work in, uh, in St. Louis again. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Sam went to the extremes, I think, in just insisting on Met wrestling without any show at all. and. The Sheik was the polar opposite. Mm-hmm. I don't right. think the Sheik knew what a wrist lock was. <laughs> oh, but he owned several nice wrist watches, to quote Gorilla Monsoon. And, uh, you know, we recently had a Bobby Heenan uh, special. Uh, Bobby Heenan, of course, recently passed away uh, and worked Memphis a, a few times. It was in Nick's, Nick Bockwinkel's corner. The first time he faced Lawler in August of 78. And for what I believe were two stinkaroos with handsome Jimmy Valiant. Talk about a clash of styles with Bockwinkle and Valiant. Yeah, that may have been the worst match ever booked. <laughs> ever booked. <laughs> well, you, you never saw me wrestle Jackie Moore. so. Uh... <laughs> well, Jimmy came to me. I laid out their match, and he just sat in the dressing room and didn't say anything. And and one of my terms was simulate a real fight, and we'll give the fans their money's worth. And Jimmy came to me, and he called me off out in the hall, and he said, Well, man, I ain't never been in a fight. And I said, in in elementary school, <laughs> never. Do you mean you've made it through your life and never been in a fight? Right. Never. I don't believe in fighting. <laughs> oh my gosh! So, so I said, "Well, just do the best you can." And it was a it's it stunk the arena out. I mean, it was terrible. But but then you brought them back the next week. <laughs> Well, because what I saw did you did you see that match? Uh, I I remember it was done a little. It was done kind of cool because it actually showed Jimmy uh, attempting to wrestle a little bit, and he was doing instead of his loud, you know, explosive, uh, charismatic promos, he was talking in, in kind of his normal voice, which was actually very low. You know, Dave Brown likes to say he's never seen anything like it. Like you talk to handsome Jimmy backstage drinking a cup of coffee and he'd be like, hey, hey, Dave, good morning. How you doing, brother? But then once he came through that curtain, he exploded uh, and was a it was a tremendous interview. But he's going he's he's kind of talking about his match with Bonkwinkle and how he's going to do things differently in the rematch. And it was sort of an effective way. It, It actually drew pretty well, the rematch. Yeah, but 
the reason I did it is after the match, Jimmy threw a chair in the ring and had a great match with the chair. <laughs> Did elbow drops on it and picked it up and slammed it. <laughs> so I told him when he got in the back, I said, Jimmy, think of Bachwinkle as that chair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I love well, Jimmy. You know, Lawler and I bought him a house. Yeah. As part of a deal to come in. And he decided that he wanted to go to Jim Crockett's territory in the Carolinas that he could make a lot of money. So he oh, put yeah. the keys in the mailbox and yeah. called and said, brother, thank you for the house, but I got to go. So he gave well, us the house back. And that house was in Bartlett, Tennessee, which, which is, which was probably, I, so handsome Jimmy was practically a neighbor of mine and I, I didn't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh boy! Uh, my mother ran into Handsome Jimmy at uh, at the Memphis airport, and I guess this was in '78 when he was really hitting a stride as a babyface. And she approached him and she said, uh, "I hate to bother you, uh, but can I get your autograph? It, it, it's for my it's for my son." And you know, Handsome had his sunglasses on, never looked at my mom, and said, "Huh, for your son, huh?" Sure it is, Mama. Sure it is. <laughs> and signed it. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, but anyway, getting back to the uh, the quest for the title, the the last uh, it, you know, and this is sort of a gimmick that was used during uh, Dory Funk Junior's title reign, where the last guy that the local contender would have to beat would be Terry, and in this case, uh, Lawler had to go through Jerry Briscoe. Um, right. and that set up finally the title match, which I guess we recently celebrated its, uh, 43rd anniversary, September 16th, 1974, Jerry Lawler, uh, months before his 25th birthday challenges uh, Briscoe for the NWA world heavyweight title with championship prices in effect, which means, uh, I guess ringside went from $5 to $7. And I believe that was the only reason that, uh, perhaps it didn't sell out. Yeah. The story I remember, I remember the match. It was great, but it was very, very emotional to me because, you know, a program even back then, if it lasted, I think the Jackie Fargo out green program lasted seven weeks, but most of them you know, they would run their course in five or six weeks. And here's one that lasted a full year. And I don't know if the fans know this or not, but Jack Briscoe was Eddie Graham's boy. Yeah. For mm-hmm. lack of a better word. Yeah. He, he, he had, ruined he, he, him and yeah. brought, him, brought him along. And Jerry was, you know, I viewed him as like my son and Eddie Graham and I were great friends. And for some reason he really liked me. And when I had my political problems, he was in my corner and, you know, helped me in politically and with talent and every other way. But, uh, Eddie and I are standing at the mid South Coliseum watching that match. And the fans going crazy and 
standing up for most of it. And uh, I got emotional. Mm. And Eddie is a real genuine tough guy. So I was kind of embarrassed and I would, uh, you know, I'd move a step or two away from him because <laughs> I didn't want him to see that I had tears running down my cheek. Mm. And so finally I said, oh, hell with it. I can't run from him. So I turned around and I looked at him and he's standing there bawling. <laughs> the tears running down his face. And uh, oh. he he said, kid, if you tell anybody about this, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, but, and, he, and he probably would if he were, if he were still with yeah. us. Uh, but, so that, that's a night that I'll never forget. It's like two old men proud of their sons. Well, and yeah, and how, gosh, Jerry, that... How proud were you for Eddie Graham, you know, one of the most powerful men in in the Alliance at that time, uh, to come to Memphis and see this huge crowd, see the see the payoff of this very special program that you've built that really created the overarching storyline in Memphis for years while, while they're chasing the world title. Uh, no wonder you got so emotional. I mean, uh, and, and the crowd was popping for everything. I mean, Lawler did a suplex and the place went bananas. Uh, the atmosphere just had to be absolutely just magical. Yeah, it was. It was really, really special. And I guess more than any human being, Eddie Graham, I would not have ever had a chance to promote Memphis if it hadn't been Betty Graham. And so he was really, really, all of that together brought up so many emotions from a hundred different directions. It was a, it was a special night. How did you negotiate that finish? Because I'm sure that Briscoe didn't do that a lot where a local guy actually gets a pinfall. Uh, and appears to have won the world championship. Uh, and of course, you know, Jerry used a chain and has it under his armpit. And when uh, I, th- I think Jerry Briscoe runs in the ring, lifts Lawler's arm as Thomas Marlin is about to hand Lawler the 10 pounds of gold. Lance Russell has already announced Lawler the world champion. And then the chain falls and hits the mat and Marlin reverses the decision. And that's a pretty bold, uh, pretty bold finish to get. Briscoe to agree to because you have film of Lawler Penn and the world champion. Yeah. Well, Eddie and I had talked about the finish probably a dozen times. I mean, he and I were, Eddie and I were real close. We talked weekly every two weeks. I mean, not just about wrestling, about everything Mm. about life. I mean, you know, Eddie shared, much more information about his personal life than than I would have preferred, but he and I were really, really close. How much did Eddie influence your booking style? Oh, a lot. A lot. You know, Eddie told me early on, keep it real. Mm. He said, you know, if you can try to get your wrestlers to believe that it's real when they go to the ring. Now, I don't mean shoot real. 
but I mean that the that the theater is real, that the story is real. And you know, Eddie was one of the great Finnish men. He could set up a match that would have everybody's heart in their throat. He was one of the best there ever was. I, I believe you told me one time that he actually kind of called you out a little bit and asked you to tone down some of the gimmick matches. Oh, he did. <laughs> <You> did. <laughs> he did. I and think I he's, like, he's, he, he's like, you got guys fighting on scaffolds. Uh, actually, and you were one of them. <laughs> you, you and, uh, was it Don Green in Louisville? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which actually made... And I, yeah. I told him, I said, I said, Eddie, this is as real as you can get. Climb your butt up 30 feet above the ring. And, <laughs> and on a two-foot wide board and, and see how fake you think that is. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he, he laughed. He said, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> and, well... And a, a young Jim Cornette took a photo of that match, and it actually made the cover of Gong Weekly in Japan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, I guess I still have it. It's one of the few things that I kept. And then, I and then of course, proud of that. And then, of course, ironically enough, Jim uh, suffers a terrible injury falling off a scaffold uh, at the hands of the Road Warriors and, at, at Starcade. So, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, So Lawler, it was a it was a dangerous match. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't get anybody to do it. Is the reason I was in the first. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know Uh, Paul Heyman story, don't you? That's the reason he got fired. Yeah, because he was uh, he was afraid of heights. And uh, well, no, he told me that he would do the match in Evansville. And then we got there that night, and the bell rung, and the bell rung, and the bell rung, and I went back to the dressing room, and Paul's sitting there dressed, and he said, I just can't do it. I said, well, you know I won't have any choice but to fire you. Why didn't you tell me I would have booked it some other way? Well, I didn't want you to think I was a P. (laughs) Right. I got you. (laughs) Well, I think you're a... Sure. I believe Mr. Lawler gave uh, Paul a parting gift, a broken jaw. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He, you know, I know he he uh, he gave. I know he gave Jimmy Hart payback for the uh, uh, shoot horses comment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but he but 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 he also broke Heyman's jaw. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Oh yeah, and Lawler, you know, Lawler threw the best working punch in the business. So if he ever really connected, you knew he was probably pissed. And uh, I yeah. guess, I guess I had been uh, really hesitant with my kicks, and I was, I was attacking Randy Hales, and I was landing these weak kicks. And Lawler came in to make the save, and he about knocked me out. <laughs> He hit me. He didn't break my jaw. He hit me in the side of the head, but he knocked me goofy. And I come to the back and I see him walking up and I think he's going to apologize. He goes, you know what that was for? And I said, why? Because you got to lay those damn kicks in, kid. 
<laughs> I said, okay. Yeah. I, said, I, yeah. got, I, got, I got the message really quick. Jim White and Sam and Lawler were, must have been in, I'd say, 20 rides because their matches were so emotionally real that people would get in the ring and try to get them. And I saw Lawler knock out at least 20 different people. I mean, fans that were in right. the ring trying to hurt him. Yeah. And so I was in St. Louis campaigning for Lawler to win the title. And one of the promoters, and I don't remember who, said, uh, you know, we have a tradition, Jerry, of only having legitimate tough guys wear the title. And boy, that just shot sparks through me. I said, let me tell you something. I have done well in this business, and I have a lot of money. And I don't know how much you've got, but I'll put up whatever you want to bet. And you bring your tough guy, and I'll bring Lawler, and Lawler will knock his ass out. Wow. Before they can have a match. And, I mean, it just, Lawler was, you know, no. Amateur wrestling, he couldn't win at the worst school there is. But Wasn't a hooker by any means. If you got on the wrong end of his fist, he'd knock your brains out. Well, that, yeah, that's what I heard, that he and Bruiser got into a, uh, a scuffle and that Lawler got the better of him. Oh, I, you know, I don't know about that. I can't. It doesn't, I don't have any memory of it, but I, you know, I don't have whole Dick Atlas in a lot of high regard. What did, uh, now, you know, I would think, you know, you helped out Jim Barnett uh, and you helped uh, him win the Atlanta wrestling war. Obviously you had an ally and Eddie Graham. Uh, how, how did they feel about Lawler getting a short run with the belt? Were were they trying to persuade the help the, the rest of the board to, to give Jerry a, oh, a run? Eddie, Eddie Graham was in the corner, and Eddie kind of controlled the Southern promoters. Control is not the right word. He he had a lot of influence with the, all the Southern promoters. But uh, they just... You know, we couldn't get the votes. It was that simple. After the match with uh, with Briscoe, you know, a lot of fans at that point uh, had been dying to cheer for Jerry. Uh, and I think that world title match was sort of the culmination of that because Memphis didn't have a pro sports team. You know, the, the joke for years was that if you wanted a pro sports team to succeed in Memphis, they'd have to have pro wrestling matches at halftime. And so Jerry turns babyface. Uh, now, one thing that was interesting uh, in hearing some of Lawler's early babyface promos, which we're going to go to uh, right now, he sort of channels his inner Dusty. He keeps talking about my people, my people, my people in Memphis. They're my people, and I'm going to win the belt for my people, uh, which is really kind of interesting to hear uh, to hear Jerry's approach. Uh, to to being a babyface. Let's hear that promo for the big rematch with Jack Briscoe, this time with Jerry entering the bout as a babyface. That's exactly what you'd 
like to do. You'd like to ignore me. You'd like to pretend there ain't no such thing as King Jerry Lawler because you know, Buckwheat, that I'm the man that can beat the stomper in a fair fight. You know that if you hadn't gone to that dress room and gotten that stomper something to put in his boots, baby, that he would have lost that match. You know it in your heart. That's why you'd like to pretend there's no such thing as Jerry Lawler. You put something in his boot, baby. That wasn't no sock boot off the rack down at Kenny's shoe store. You slipped something in there because don't no boot feel like that, and you showed it right on the film. You saw it, didn't you, Lance? Oh, I'll tell you. Hey. Well, in case you let it, it really went down. Hey. I never saw you go down. That's why, that's why Buckwheat says to ignore me. He's got to ignore me because he knows I'm the man that can beat his man. And that's exactly what, that's what, hey, is that what you want to see me do? Beat the... Hey. That's right, man. When the people... You see, all, all the people here in Memphis, they work hard. They go out, they work hard for the money. And they got a little bit they got to buy groceries with. They got a little bit they got to buy gas with. And they got a little bit that they can spend on, on the sports. And that's what they want to do. When they come, when they want to put down their money, and they're going to see... If they put down their money, they want to go see Muhammad Ali. You know what they want to see him do? They want to see him talk and dive, man, and then they want to see him knock somebody out. If they put down their money and go see Hank Aaron play baseball, Hammer and Hank, they want to see the man knock a home run. If they put down the money down at the Coliseum and come to see the king, they want to see the man win. And that's exactly what I'm going to do for my people. I'm going to do it. You see, they've been behind me. This is going to be, we had two shots at it. First time, I told them. I wasn't going to let them down. We went out there the first time, not just me, but me and all my people down at the Coliseum we had our chance first time. We wore his rear end out, but we didn't win. Come away without a win. Well, we tried it again. We did another job on him, but we still didn't win. Well, okay, we're going to try it one more time. And I know right now there's a lot of people out there saying, oh, listen, man, he's just trying to get a crowd down at the Coliseum. He's just trying to get a lot of people to come out and see him. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get a crowd down there because that's what I need. I need my people behind me. Not just me going to be wrestling the Stomper, it's going to be me and all my people because I want to beat him not just for myself, I want to beat him for Memphis because I think you can see for the film, he don't have too high an opinion of Memphis and the people that live here and I want to show him what we can do, baby. And I'm going to make a promise right now. I don't make many promises because next to money a promise is about the hardest thing around there is to keep. But I'm going to make a promise and I'm going to keep it. I'm going to promise all my people out there that you be down there Monday night and you're going to see me beat the Stomper. And I'm going to get my belt back. That's it. Monday night, I'm saying it right now, I will beat the Stomper. Well, uh, you're talking about doing a job on him. You really did a job on his head. You tattooed him good. I have never seen him, and I don't think Bearcat Wright either, had ever seen his, uh, his big Mongolian athlete take such a shellacking around the head the way that you laid it on. Well, it's going to be the same story this week. The only difference being that he's not going to be able to go and get help from the dressing room because that's where I'm going to depend on you. Like I said, I don't need nobody to do me any favors. I'm not going to be looking for anything special for you, Lance, but I'm just looking for somebody that's not going to be doing him any favors, just like the referee did last week when he didn't see that obvious slip in his boot. Lance Russell, we, you refereed one time before. That was also a match of mine, and I learned one thing from that. You'll call it right down the line. That's all I ask. I'm making a promise, like I said, they're hard to keep, but I'm going to keep this one. Monday night, I will beat the stone. That's all I got to say. By golly, there it is. Jerry Lawler making it pretty plain and fat right there. Uh, 
We'll be in there refereeing. I don't claim to be the world's greatest referee. Told him that from the front end, but uh, we will do just what. Oh, one more thing. Here he comes. I want to say one more thing before I leave. All my people over in Jonesboro, too, I hadn't been there in a long time. And they, uh, I talked to promoters. I had a day off tonight. And I had them add an extra match, so I'm going to be in Jonesboro, Arkansas tonight. And everybody, I, all the people here in Memphis, we're going to make a little caravan. We're going to go over to Jonesboro. So I'll see you there tonight. Okay. We're going to see him in the ring in action coming up in just a moment with Jackie Fargo against the Cowboy Outlaws. And that obviously is is a big deal because suddenly he is the hometown hero. It's like almost like the hometown hero uh, or, or the home team playing in the Super Bowl in your city. Because when I started going to the matches and I would see Lawler in a world title match, that's what it sort of felt like. It sort of felt like my home team was playing for the championship. I remember uh, an AWA world title match I saw with Lawler and Bockwinkle, and there was an old man. He must have been about 70 years old, and Lawler and Nick went 60 minutes, and actually 65 minutes, and Lawler pinned him in overtime, which uh, <laughs> didn't result in a title change. But I remember that that man, and he had been drinking a little bit, and he, he looked over at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, I, I really hope I live to see Jerry win that title. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, part of that was the, the changing face of pro sports really affected me as a kid. I grew up, and you won't probably remember any of these names. Well, maybe a couple of them. But uh, New York Yankees was... Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle. And they were Yankees all the time. And then about, well, in the 70s, I realized, you know what? I'm cheering for a uniform. I'm not cheering for a team. Because they, they changed players as often as I change blue jeans <laughs> and people love to identify with and give an emotional attachment to a team. And that was a big influence on how I promoted wrestling. I wanted the people to feel like, they were coming to see their team win the title. The right. team happened to be one person. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Barnes and Dundee, when they first came here, I sat down and told them, you know, get it in your mind that you're the opposing team and present yourself that way. Oh, and they did. You know, yeah, you're you're <laughs> Australians, and all Americans, particularly Southern Americans, stink. They weren't too fun of African Americans either. I have, I think, what may have been Dundee's first promo on television that would have caused a uh, and it may have caused a riot at the Coliseum. I don't know, but uh, yeah, they were good at what they they followed your advice. <laughs> Yeah. Sitting above my bar in my living room, and I come home, 
after I've been away for a couple of weeks and my wife and my children are sitting there and they get these belts up above them and I sit there and I go, well, gee, Bill, where are those belts and that's where they're staying? Oh, I've got to tell you something else. He's even got a belt that he won for himself and he lets me wear it sometimes. I do, sir. He does. See, he, yeah, see, he's not all bad and mean. He's a real nice fella. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing, and this is what we want. Eddie Marlin, you must have a knot right deep down in the part of your stomach. Boy, it's not muscle. It's fear. It's fear of George Barnes and Bill Dundee that we are going to knock it all out of your Monday night sport. So you're going to have the bruises. You're going to have anybody else, little fat, bald-head Japanese. Mr. Russell. Excuse me, man. Well, well, whilst you're out here and you have the pleasure of our company, I would like to say one thing. If you could, if you could tell those black people that go, that go to Memphis Stadium, that sit around in the bleachers, you know, the ones that are too frightened to come down into the ringside because they might, they might get hurt or something, could you tell them when we go back to the dressing room, please, please not to yell abuse at us because we have tender feelings and we do not like people like that to abuse us and so on. After all, we are strangers in your country and we are... And we do expect a little bit of uh, good behavior off your side, please. Well, I'm not certain you can count on any good behavior from Tojo. And this is another anymore. little thing I got for you black people out there. I told all you expecting mums last week you could call your babies George and Bill. But you black people keep to the Leroy and all the other funny people names you call them boys. Okay. Not George and not Bill, and that's all I want to say. Bill Dundee and George. Yeah, okay, fine. George and uh, Bill Dundee, they will be down there challenging for the NWA Southern uh, Heavyweight, or uh, rather, tag team. They got me doing it now. Tag team championship. I wish the WWE, because it's about the only wrestling out there now, I wish they would try to make me feel that somebody was representing me. Yeah. Does that well, make I, any sense? I don't I know if I'm saying oh, it right. Oh, oh, oh absolutely. I, I, like, uh, when Lawler had his heart attack, a guy from the Commercial Appeal fell in my Kentucky Fried Wrestling column and called me, and, you know, he was a younger guy who was not around during Memphis's heyday, and, he, and I was trying to explain to him, I said, here's the deal. Jerry Lawler was my Mickey Mantle. He was my Terry yeah. Bradshaw. He was my Roger Stallback. He was my Larry Bird. We didn't have a pro sports team. So all my friends and I, we would make uh, cardboard cutouts of the crown-shaped goatee that he would wear, and we would glue them to our chins and strut around. And uh, we did sort of backyard wrestling, but we weren't jumping off roofs. We all wanted to cut the best promo. <laughs> you know, we, we yeah. were all like cut, cutting interviews on each other. So that's why, you know, when I finally got my chance to to uh, to do that uh, for uh, for your promotion, I'd been practicing my whole life for that moment. Yeah. I, and, I, yeah. But, you know, I think it's I, and I think it's hard. You know, the crowd last night uh, actually I, I actually went to No Mercy. The No Mercy pay-per-view. And really, the highlight was going backstage to catering and talking to Jerry for about 30 minutes because he had just wrestled Terry Funk in Raleigh, North Carolina, and had to catch a red eye to get to Los Angeles. And he was telling me that Terry called for a pile driver, and Lawler kicked him in the gut, and Funk kind of bit down. And Lawler's like, Terry, I'm going to need you to, to bend down more to, to give you the pile driver. He goes, Jerry, my back won't go anymore. And he goes... It was the worst-looking pile driver you've ever seen in your life. I, I just kind of picked him up. He couldn't kick his legs up, and we just kind of crashed to the canvas. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, well, I admire all those guys. I admire Bill Bundy. He's a couple of years younger than I am, and he's still wrestling. 
What I was saying, though, you know, they come to Los Angeles, WWE, maybe four times a year, St. Louis, uh, maybe three times a year, Kansas City twice a year. So it's I think it's hard. It's hard for fans to have that emotional connection. You know, the uh, Lawler wrestled every week. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would see him uh, sometime. I, I saw him at a grocery store one time and nearly fainted. You know, it, it was like seeing Elvis Presley somewhere out in public. Yeah. And and still to this day is is probably one of the biggest celebrities in town. At one time, it was the Saturday morning wrestling show, I believe, in 82 and 83. was the third highest rated show in the city, including primetime. It was right behind Dallas and Dynasty. Just incredible TV numbers that had to be unmatched anywhere else in, in the country. Yes, they were. And, and you know... I was at a basketball game yesterday. My grandson mm-hmm. plays on a, a little team. And the fellow behind me tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, I'm a big fan of yours. And I just had to say hello to you. I see you at these games periodically. And so real quick, I'm calculating, well, this guy's 35 to 40. And I said, are you sure you don't have me confused with my son, Jeff? It's been a long time since I wrestled. And he said, oh, no, I watch YouTube. (laughs) And he said, I watched it a couple of hours. I watched you and Tojo against Don and Al Green. And I'm thinking, my goodness. It's got a cult following uh, around the world. There's really, there's really no other promotion quite like it. I mean, uh, I loved Mid-South Wrestling but with Bill Watts, but really their best years, in my opinion, were when Dundee went there and, and did the same stuff that, that you had already done previously in Memphis. Uh, yeah. And it kind of brought that Memphis magic to, uh, to Mid-South. Now, Bill Watts is a, you know, had a tremendous wrestling mind and, uh, and was very successful. But, uh, but to me, that's when he was producing his best television, I think. Yeah. Well, he, Bill came up and, uh, said that he was going under and, uh, we were so blessed here. I was able to let him have a whole territory of talent. And, uh, you know, Cornette, and I kept Jimmy Hart and sent him to Rock and Roll Express, and I kept the Fabs, and on and on and on. And uh, then that son of a gun came back and, and ran against us in Memphis. Right. He sure did. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, and Drew, and Drew flies. Because I was, yeah. I was, yeah. I was there, uh, and there were about eight hundred people in the Mid South Coliseum. Yeah. So he, he well, was... if you remember, Jerry and I put on a softball game for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was, I think that was before a WWF show. Uh, yeah. Because WWF did not draw draw well for years in Memphis. It, it took them a long time to get established there. Uh, because yeah. your creative booking and and Jerry's, you know, you guys would swap booking duties, I believe, uh, every six months or so, and you could always sort of tell, you know, if suddenly Frankenstein or uh, the Amazing Spider-Man were on the card, then maybe that w- maybe Lawler had taken the book, and uh, but there was a more serious approach, 
and everything was centered around uh, world championships and maybe like really personal issues. Maybe that's when you were in control. But it, but it was, but it, you know, it just it gave uh, it gave a lot of variety to the product. Yeah. Well, I have sure enjoyed spending some time with you, Scott, and I want to commend you. I don't know where you dug them up from. <laughs> these audios interviews is like walking back down memory lane and i've never seen any of it before my heart was racing jerry because this guy had been telling me about these audio cassettes his name's chip namius and i want to thank chip very much for letting us have these cassettes to work with and brian is working uh, a little magic on them to clean them up they're just piece, little little nuggets of gold interviews that haven't been heard in years and it just gives you a glimpse of how quickly Lawler developed into such a, a superstar talent and a drawing card yes Oh, man, it was a lot of fun today. Taking that trip down memory lane in Memphis, Tennessee with Jerry Jarrett, the architect, the man behind the mayhem of Memphis wrestling all those years when I was growing up, uh, the man who uh, really uh, had an impact on my life and, and my childhood and provided me with so many wonderful memories. It's hard for me to express uh, the magic that you felt in the air when you were in the crowd at that flying saucer-shaped arena uh, in Memphis as Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee and Randy Savage and all these great stars participated in all these wonderful storylines of Shakespeare for the masses, as Jerry Jarrett calls it. And Jerry Lawler truly was a Shakespearean character. He won he lost. He was betrayed by numerous people over the years. He betrayed several people. We rooted for him. Sometimes we hated him. But deep down, he was our home team. And that's the way that I think my friends and I felt about him. So Jerry Jarrett truly got the reaction he was looking for. Uh, and that's a tribute to his, uh, his great mind for the business and his eye for talent. Well, Brian, um, I guess that about wraps up this first show. I think it does, and what a great first show it was, and I think you showed the listeners a lot of what you're going to be bringing to the table in the weeks ahead. Great conversations, great guests, amazing classic audio, and so much more. If you're a fan of Memphis Wrestling, Kentucky Fried Wrestling will be your go-to podcast each and every week. Uh, before we wrap things up, Scott, I want to remind everyone that you can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and everywhere else. You're a one-stop shop for classic wrestling talk and wrestling humor. Lots of Memphis wrestling talk as well. The 605 Super Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. And you can find me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. And you can also find me on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N. I'm not going to sing like that guy on World Class, but uh, you get the idea. Where I come from, wrestling is a term of endearment, okay? I know that some people find it offensive. Uh, they say, no, I'm a fan of professional wrestling. But uh, where I come from, it was always wrestling, and it was said with a lot of love, I can assure you.
Just want to remind everybody, you can subscribe to the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. That includes iTunes, or you can go directly to kfrpod.com, where you can download each episode or access the RSS feed. Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and we'll be here each and every week. Bye-bye, everybody. For the Coliseum on Monday night, the action will begin on Tuesday night. Bell time will be 8 o'clock. Ticket office will be open from 9 till 12 noon on Monday. Tuesday night, Dave, how about today? Tojo Yamamoto winning over Pepe Lopez in a single match. It was Robert Fuller defeating Mr. X, Tommy Gilbert, and Eddie Marlin going against Al Green and Phil Hickerson with their manager, Sam Bass. That match was stopped by the referee with no decision. Jerry Lawler with his manager, Sam Bass, defeating Gary Hamrick, and then it was Robert Fuller winning over Jerry Lawler. A separate and distinct match. He did beat him. We want to remind you in Jonesboro that uh, Eddie and uh, Tommy will be over there against Green and Hickerson, and it should be a dandy. We'll look for you next week right here at same time, 11 o'clock. Until then, a reminder that Studio Wrestling comes to you from the studios of Channel 13 at 485 South Highland. Directed today by John Wolfe. This is Lance Russell speaking for Dave Brown, inviting you back again next week and bidding you a very good day. And off the field, we're in complete control. Our reputation makes the point. Scoring is our goal. We're the reveling group from Memphis, the biggest kick in town. Let you down. We're the reveling group from Memphis, the biggest kick in